Welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Lee. Our guest today, George Plaster. This episode sponsored by the Well Coffee House, a Nashville-area coffee house that provides fresh roast coffee, along with house-made pastries, breakfast, and lunch offerings. There are four locations to serve you in the Nashville area, Brentwood Green Hills downtown and Bellevue. More information can be found at wellcoffeehouse.org, the Well Coffee House where coffee changes lives. We thank our co-presenting sponsor, Nashville's Learning and Development Center, which is located in the Gulch. Today's news is presented by Sutherland and Belk, a family-owned injury law firm. If you or a loved one has been hurt in any type of accident, call Taylor or Russell at 615-846-6200. See what your rights are and if they can help. Not much immediate news to report, but here's something to keep your eye on. Kerwin Walton will be announcing on April the 25th. Walton is a point guard out of Minnesota. Vanderbilt is among his six finalists, and of course the Commodores got a big commitment last week in basketball from Tyron Lawrence, the Georgia native who prepped his last season at Kansas's Sunrise Christian. The guest line is presented by our friends at Bowling Branch, started by Vanderbilt graduates Scott and Missy Tannen. I had no clue how comfortable sheets could be until I got Bowl and Branch sheets. They are fair trade certified, meaning they are made under safe conditions by men and women treated and paid fairly. Try them free for a month. You can return them, but you won't want to. Once you get the sheets, try the mattress. That was voted the best mattress of 2018. Go to bowlandbranch.com. That is spelled B-O-L-L. Enter the promo code Vandy and get $50 off your first set of sheets. George Plaster joins us from Nashville Sports Radio. George, it's been two or three weeks. It's not been personal. It's just been that we haven't had a lot to talk about. I try to spare my guests from coming on here every week and talking when there's little new material. I think we have some things to talk about today that may connect back to sports a little bit. And with that, thank you for joining us today. Hope you are doing well. And you may want to take your phone off mute. Oh, you're right. Wow. <laughs> you know, just another in a series of examples where technologically I don't totally understand everything I'm doing. Um, I hope everybody is safe and well and that all of you had a, a wonderful Easter holiday. holiday. Uh, now I know I can't even talk. We're off to a rousing start here. Have you a good holiday? Well, it's kind of fitting. Society is more or less on mute right now. Well, maybe not on mute. That's not the right word, but on pause for sure. Um, It's just been a weird time. What's it been like being in the sports journalism business the last couple of weeks as just reality continues to sink in that there's not going to be anything for a while? Major League Baseball maybe the exception to that. We will get to that part in the mailbag. But how's that been in your profession? I think I know the answer, but I would like to hear that from you. Yeah, it's been pretty quiet. Um, I'm not saying it's been hard to do a sports talk show, but it's been different for sure. I've tried really hard to continue to discuss sports issues, but it does get a little harder as we go along just because there's not a lot 
out there, you know, when a horse tournament is the biggest thing going on on the weekend or the debut of Michael Jordan's um, uh, big series on ESPN next weekend, when that's the highlight of what you've got going on, there's not a lot. Um, You know, I think as I kind of look at this thing, our parents, um, you know, the big moment in their life that they would never forget is where were they for JFK's assassination? For us, it's probably 9-11. For your kids, it's going to be this pandemic. You know, 50 years from now, they're probably still going to be talking about this. Yeah, I think so, too. It's been interesting to see how this thing has affected everybody. For me, it's been a nice chance to catch my breath. I'm not saying that I'm glad for anything because people are getting sick and suffering and dying, but you can find some pockets of some things in there to appreciate. One of the things that has really occurred to me is when I was a kid, you know, particularly back in the 80s, sports was something that you don't get like we get now. For instance, a lot of games, a lot of the Vanderbilt games that I followed more often than not, if I wasn't there, I heard them on radio. TV games were sort of, I'm not going to say a rarity, but they weren't like they are today where everything is on TV, for one. And I think the slowdown has really made me appreciate things. There are major things that you don't appreciate because there is so much sports on TV and sports in the media. It's kind of taken me back to a time now where with nothing live going on these days, you go back and watch great games from the past and things like that. And I think the absence of things has made me have a little bit more appreciation for what we have lost. And I suspect I'm not alone in that. Oh, I think when all this turns to normal, I say that we're going to appreciate little things a lot more than we probably have. Maybe that's one of the good things that'll come out of it. Maybe getting together with, you know, three friends for lunch, um, you know, which right now just seems like, okay, rush, rush, rush. How do I get there? I got 45 minutes, whatever you got to say, make it quick. will turn into, boy, I appreciate your friendship. Uh, I value this hour more than you can imagine. I just think all of us hopefully will have a little bit more appreciation for the small things in life that up till now haven't meant much. But during this 30 days, we give anything to experience. It's funny watching my six-year-old son go through this because he loves sports and he is just constantly watching replays of college football games. Uh, If we'd started this 10 minutes earlier, you would have missed a full-blown fit in the background that you probably would have heard. He was trying to watch some Hall of Fame-related thing that he could not articulate, and that was frustrating him. But it was funny the other day. He's been watching a lot of classic bowl games, and I think he's watched a lot of Alabama. Um, He just walks in my office on Friday, and he just looks at me and says, Dad, Alabama's kickers aren't any good. (laughs) Yeah, but what you need to tell him is, well, the rest of it is, uh, you know, it is funny. You see uh, 
you see in these highlights all kinds of things. Uh, th- th- there was a bowl game that got shown, um, the Orange Bowl, and I want to say it was around 2000 when Tom Brady was a senior at Michigan. And I watched that pretty close. I just wanted to see if, uh, you know, I would get any kind of a glimpse of the greatest of all time. I mean, we're all watching this stuff for different reasons. Um, But part of it is we haven't got anything else to watch. So I guess the, the old saying, bring it on, applies. Yeah, that was one of the games that he was watching that prompted the comment was that Orange Bowl game. I think that was the one with Alabama, and I think it was Brady's senior year perhaps. But on a Brady sidebar, and we will get back to Vanderbilt in a minute because I, I want to hit on some things there, but did you see the interview the other day that he did, and I cannot remember who it was with, but with the Patriots, everything's buttoned down up there, and now that he's not employed by them, he talked about things like, I think that he smoked marijuana and drank a good bit in high school and wasn't the discipline-focused machine that he is now. That was just a really rare glimpse into Tom Brady that you don't normally see. Yeah, I, I'm guessing that he's going to enjoy the freedom uh, of Tampa Bay. I, I don't know Bruce Arians. I've never met him. But he and Watson Brown are really good friends, and Watson has painted – the picture of uh, of what Bruce Arians is. And I think Brady, uh, whether he enjoys the success on the field that he's had in the past, I think he's going to enjoy the freedom and the ability to be, um, you know, part of game planning, um, that kind of thing. I think he's going to enjoy that greatly. So as you've gone back and watched old games and things like that, give me some of the three or four games or moments that you've most enjoyed watching? The first one was game four of the 91 World Series, Braves and Minnesota Twins. And it didn't dawn on me for about 10 minutes, like a total dope, that, duh, you were there. Um, and and it kind of hit me. Lonnie Smith hit a ball the dead center that tied the game at two all that he absolutely crushed. And it was from the minute that ball got hit, all of a sudden my memory bank kicked in and I remembered everything from that point on. For me, that was one of the real highlights because 91, I'll always say has been the greatest baseball year of my life. Um, The Braves came out of nowhere. The Southeast was on fire about him. The Tomahawk shop had was cool to be raised. Where for the 25 years or however many years I'd been a fan before that, I felt like I was the only one. Um, Watching Brady at Michigan uh, was a cool one. And I think I talked to you about this one the last time we did this, but I watched the. the East regional final, the, the 92 game, which may well be the best college game, uh, that's been played, uh, in our lifetime, the Duke Kentucky game. And it was really interesting for me because while the game was great, uh, all of a sudden with about six minutes left, they sort of pan press row 
And on the front row, two legendary Hall of Famers, Marty Brenneman, C.M. Newton. And I found myself kind of watching that more than the game. You know, it's now been a couple of years since Coach Newton's been gone. Really been more like four years since I really had a fun conversation with him. And um, it it was just kind of neat to see. Um, You know, (laughs) I, I miss what I miss most there are the phone calls because when he would put a call into me, there was always something smart, Alec, that was coming. There was always a little dig that would start about 15 minutes of back and forth. And like I told his son, Martin, several months ago, I said, that's what I miss the most are the phone calls that were total nonsense. Yeah. And I think relationships is a key part of sports. I think that's one reason that my bond with my childhood memories is so strong because my dad took me to a lot of those games and going back and replaying a lot of moments. And again, I do promise we'll get to Vanderbilt here in a second for our audience, but there's been three plays that I've kind of, or moments that I've kind of gone back and watched the most often for different reasons. But one of them is the music city miracle, which I was in attendance at in the stands And I tell this story a lot. My father, uh, we had season tickets. All of us are still alive. I have two brothers and my dad. We all live in the Nashville area. And so we had season tickets to the Titans, not just the first year in the new stadium, but also that year at Vanderbilt. And so we were very excited about things. I remember at the Music City Miracle, Buffalo gets that field goal, I think, with 16 seconds left. And my dad looks at us, and my dad grew up a Vanderbilt fan from childhood, and he says, guys, I have lived this moment too many times and gotten disappointed. (laughs) He said, I do not want to stick around to watch the other guys celebrate. So with that, I'm leaving, and I'll see you guys later. Dad walks out of the stadium And the way I remember him telling this later, he says, I'm getting on the shuttle bus to my car. He said, and I hear a sound like the stadium has exploded. And he said, I step onto the bus and the shuttle driver has the radio on him. He says, I just looked at him. He just said, he said, I just asked him what just happened. Well, he may have run into me when Christie hit the field goal. I had to get over to, uh, uh, to the wild horse and I hear that roar I'm up on the uh, up on the sidewalk outside the stadium and I hear that roar and I get in position to see the replay of it and I remember thinking there's no way when they go in that monitor that they're going to rule in Buffalo's favor because those officials will never get out of this place alive and uh what an amazing day that was. Um, but I know exactly <laughs> know exactly how your dad feels. It's the, oh, no, I've seen this before. I felt so badly for him for years that he missed that because that's still, in my mind, the greatest sports moment in the history of Nashville. Uh <laughs> But yeah, it, it was. It's funny. I remember going and watching that in the stands, and I remember 
I, my excitement was very subdued because we're from where I sat, and of course the replay has proven that it was not a forward pass or a forward lateral or whatever the officiating term for this. I thought from where I sat, and I guess it was just based on the optics optics of where both Frank Wycheck and Kevin Dyson were on the field where they were moving, but I thought that it was going to be ruled a forward lateral and going to come back. And so only after the review did I get really excited. And from that point on, boy, that was quite a moment. But yeah, that is one that I've watched a lot. The other one, I'm sure you've seen several times too, was the 1991 NLCS where Sid Bream scores the winning run. And God knows how many times that one's been watched between our house and yours. And the other one, uh, and I've done this partially for my kids, but because I still find this just to be one of the favorite and compelling sports moments I've ever seen. But have you gone back and watched the Cal Stanford play from the 82 game where the band got on the field? No, I have not seen that one uh, during this 30-day period. Um, what an amazing play, though. Oh, I think that is my favorite sports moment of all time that does not involve teams that I have any sort of interest in, just because of the pure spectacle of it all. I don't know how else to put it. Okay, I'm going to give you, you – you've jogged my memory. I'm going to give you one more, uh, which is going to be the point where you probably say, why do I have this guy on on this podcast? So. It was, I want to say, last Tuesday night, uh, boredom had set in. Uh, honk if you feel the same way. Um, and I'm watching uh, ESPN2 had on some classic old boxing matches. Leon Spinks, Muhammad Ali from the Superdome in 78. And then they, they go from that fight to a couple of Tyson fights, uh, both of which are at Trump Plaza. And so in the, in the introductions of people before the fight starts, the ring announcer brings Muhammad Ali out there and he waves, you know, by now he's retired and he's not moving particularly well at this point. And then all of a sudden they bring out Donald Trump <laughs> with, I must say a lot better hair back then than now. And, um, he got kind of a, I wouldn't call it an ovation. I, I would call it a, just a polite, yeah, whatever. Uh, <laughs> that that got my attention. Yeah, and if you want to watch early Trump sports-related footage, he was prominently on ESPN's 30 for 30 on their USFL episode, which was very interesting. Yeah. He wasn't the one that signed Herschel Walker, but I guess you'd call him the beneficiary because by the time Walker started playing, he had bought the New Jersey Generals. And his whole goal in the thing appeared to be to try to be the one franchise that the NFL would take in uh, as part of expansion. And this just in, it didn't happen. No, and that was a fascinating time, though. Reggie White was in that league, Doug Flutie, yeah. Steve Young. I mean, they had some names for sure. I don't think anybody will ever t be able to pull off, again, what they pulled off because the NFL is just so big and powerful. But if you're going back and watching things and you have the 30 for 30s or a subscription to get you those, that's a good one to watch.
You know, which uh, sort of brings me to, I guess it was Thursday or Friday, the XFL announced that it's done. And there were a lot of people, you know, with sort of that reaction of, yeah, whatever. But you know what? I honestly do believe that there is a there is a market for that product. But I don't think it's in Dallas and Los Angeles and, uh, you know, San Diego and, and all the markets where the NFL is. I think it's in places like Jackson, Mississippi and Huntsville and Valdosta, Georgia and Birmingham and, and Memphis. Football crazy areas where that team would be way up on the pecking order of importance. Uh, a lot like the Arena Football League has tried to do. And I just, I, I can't understand why the XFL and some of the others haven't figured that out. Go, go to places where, you know, they don't have major league sports and you become a big deal. Oh, I think you could put the whole league probably between Texas, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi and be fine. I say what we do is you and I pool our resources and we'll buy a goalpost uh, for one of the franchises and act like we're an owner. Yeah, I'll get out my roll of quarters that I haven't taken to the bank yet and uh, we'll get baby. on that <laughs> when you say Let's pool our resources. Well, um, people listen to this because it's a Vanderbilt podcast and I apologize. I hope we've not bored people to death. There's not a lot to talk about right now. And I thought a trip down memory lane with some things might be interesting, but let's get into Vandy. And you have seen this article as well. Um, it was basically from the hustler, which is the Vanderbilt student newspaper. And basically the hustler wrote an article this weekend about how Vanderbilt is not answering basically any of its questions on anything and this is not just a virus-related thing. This has been going on for a while. You and I have had our own experiences with Vanderbilt through the media and its lack of transparency. On one end, Vanderbilt is a private institution, does not owe anybody anything legally. On the other side, I just don't think it's been a good look for them, especially when it's dealing with your own student newspaper. Look, privacy laws are one thing, but the purpose of a university is to serve people and mostly its students. And it just seems to me so often that Vanderbilt has lost sight of that. What are your thoughts on that and what you saw in the piece that the Hustler did this weekend? Uh, just more disappointment. Uh, this seems to be a school that has developed a philosophy of run and hide. Uh, it started, I think, with Chancellor Zeppos. It had moments in the past under Joe Wyatt that were very similar to this. Uh, Gordon Gee came in, and for whatever you may think of him, um, you know, he was at least open. Uh, not he, he wasn't in this run-and-hide philosophy that they're in now. And I don't know what it is they're running and hiding from a lot of times. I, I just don't understand the philosophy. Um, I think it's really unfortunate. At times, it's been an embarrassing look, and um, I, I just don't get it. I have a working theory, and I would be interested to hear how people respond to this, But and this is one that I basically just formed as we're talking. 
But outside of their national rankings in U.S. News and World Reports, outside of their concern for what a source told me was about maybe 30 mega donors, there has been so much sentiment, and you even saw this in the comment section of that article, they just don't care that much um, unless you're, and it wasn't like this in the comments, but I've heard this elsewhere, unless you're one of about 30 people that gives to the school that has just tons of money, and this includes people that are below that that have given six, sometimes seven figures, the perception is the university just doesn't care about you. And I think that perception uh, was probably increased over last homecoming. I think a lot of people got their feelings hurt from what I hear about the university basically treating them as a dollar sign. And the third one is I think their political agenda. I think they're very interested in advancing that. I think that bleeds over into sports a lot. Other than those three things, I have a really hard time finding where Vanderbilt really cares about anything else other than maybe the people making the decisions uh, protecting themselves and very healthy six-figure salaries in most cases. Well, the one thing that I'll kind of comment on that you brought up is the belief that there's somewhere in that 25 to 30 mega donors, and that's all they care about. And I think that's totally true. Uh, I think they have blown off people that are deep into six-figure, uh, bordering on seven-figure givers uh, who have gone away because they realize that it's not appreciated. It's one of the key things, uh, and you're going to see it more uh, now once this pandemic is over. People are going to be a lot more choosy about where they give their money in a lot of cases they don't the things that we don't is what's the economy going to be like when this is over i think we've all got a suspicion and the suspicion is it's not going to be anywhere near as good as it has been so this kind of treatment of well you don't give enough for us to care is really going to get dangerous, and I think it's going to bite them in the butt if they continue to behave this way. I think what you see is a real divide, and I would say it's between the alums that are probably on the other side of 40, and particularly the higher up you go in age, I think the more pronounced that divide gets. But I sense a frustration with a large swath of their alums that Vanderbilt does not represent or care about them anymore. Now, look, the school has changed a lot, and I think there's good reasons that it's changed. Um, Nobody would obviously take issue with trying to better yourself academically or your perception or anything like that. On the other hand, I think that the school, and, and I think in a lot of ways this is justified, has tried to run from that Southern elitist country club mentality. Um, And race relations are a big part of that. Um, I I think they were trying to get away from anything that, I guess, fingers Vanderbilt is still that kind of institution, for lack of a better way to put it. But at the same time, I think that I get a sense, and I know that you get this too from your buddies that went there, 
that they've just sort of very much marginalized the people that grew up under a different time. Um, you know, the alumni legacy thing has become a big deal. I know I'm just throwing a lot of generalities out there, but there's a big disconnect between, I think, Vanderbilt and its alums of a generation or two ago. Uh, and I think that's very real, and I think you hear the undercurrents of the grumbling about that, about they have just so far departed, and a lot of people feel like it's not their university anymore for reasons uh, maybe that aren't always valid, but I think a lot of them that are. Well, I think a lot of that is true, and I think uh, when you start to get, let's say, two generations out, um, I think people reach a point where they just stop caring. And I think apathy, apathy is one of their biggest problems right now, and the fact of it is they don't seem to care. And so the, the alum that's sitting out there going, well, if they don't care, why should I care? They, they take on that role, and they start learning, you know what? Life can be just fine without this. Um, you know, they don't need my money. They don't need my support. They don't want my whatever. And it's just a really dangerous deal. Uh, and I don't know, I just don't know how they sit in a room and come up with some of these philosophies and think this is good. I have a phenomenal source on the faculty there. This person has been someone I've known for years, has read me memos that they get. I mean, I've gotten a really insider's account of things. I wish I could have this person on a podcast, but hey, it would <laughs> I probably wouldn't have that person as a source anymore. Uh, and, you know, and people have to protect their own. But it's been fascinating to hear sort of a firsthand account of what it's been like inside that place and how things have changed. But one thing this source has mentioned to me is about the demographics. And so many of Vanderbilt students now come from outside the country's borders, which I don't think anybody per se has a problem with. I know the, the source that I have spoken with does not, but this person has brought up some interesting things and has said to me, hey, look, one thing about international students is that they're full pay. You know, they don't have to discount tuition or anything. If the sticker price is 70 grand a year, that's what those people are paying. Uh, that may have been the driver of a lot of this. It's just more money. But the flip side of that is that, as this person said to me, you know, those people go home and when they're done and, and they don't come back and just the source just kind of laughs at it and says, well, look, where's this going to take the school 20, 30 years from now? All these people, they're not going to go back and care. They're not going to donate. Their giving rate already isn't very high. And I think that's where and look, the people that are making the decisions now, people do things that are in their vested interest those people are making a lot of money that make those decisions, and right now they can point to everything and say, hey, things look good. When those problems come home to roost, the disconnect they already have with their donors and the fact that a lot of people that are coming to school now probably aren't going to feel that loyal to Vanderbilt when they leave. The people that are making the decisions right now aren't going to feel the effects of those things. But the thought is, look, down the road, 
20, 30 years from now, Vanderbilt could really be in a lot of trouble with the decisions that it's made now and how it is treating people. I used to have this joke uh, that went on on the air. Um, One day we got into this a little bit and Willie said something and I was being kind of a smart ass. And, and I said, Willie, how do you think this works at kickoff? And not that kickoff is all that important, but you see it in football. You see a student body that doesn't really care. Uh, very seldom there in any kind of good numbers. It's a whole university issue. And, you know, I can remember hearing coaches talk about philosophies of recruiting, and most of them have been in the, we want to get kids in a four to six hour radius of here. They're likely to have more pride. They're likely to care. Um, It just, I I, I don't know. I, I don't get it. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Well, I think two things. I think they sort of recruit to an echo chamber. Um, they target certain communities and things like that, and then they say this is what our students want. Uh, number two, I think the other thing is what you pointed to locally. There just seems to be so much of a, I don't know that it's fair to call it a disregard, But Vanderbilt used to have a huge local presence. I'm sure you had a lot of classmates that went to BGA and places like that. It almost seems like right now you're at a disadvantage if you're you're local compared to the same resume other places. And again, it's a private school. They have the right to do that. But I think when it comes to sports, that obviously is going to hurt their fan base. And I think it's hurt a lot of people's feelings locally. I don't think people are saying, well, hey, we want our kid to get in just because he's a legacy. But I do think it does point to that disconnect where you have a group of alums from 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago that just continues to feel like it's really not part uh, of what is important to Vanderbilt. Yeah, it's uh, it's the, the complete and total disconnect. Um you know, and, and all of the pleas to to try to do the right thing seem to have gone on deaf ears. It's just a sad deal. Um, but, you know, what, and I guess what's the most sad is at times you watch the SEC network and you see how fan bases in the SEC enjoy getting together on Saturdays and reliving old times. And at Vandy, that just doesn't seem to really exist anymore. And what you've got are a lot of people my age who have just sort of washed their hands of the whole deal and said, screw it, I don't need this. Back to where we started this conversation, going back and watching old games, I saw a snippet of the Vanderbilt Georgia game from, I guess it was 2013. Yeah, that would have been it. It would have been... The time Georgia came in here ranked, James Franklin was here, Vanderbilt was down, came back and won that game late. And what was really a milestone win for them and probably the best one that James got, I mean, Tennessee aside, Tennessee wins always mean something, but in terms of quality of who they beat, probably the best one. And I was just amazed as I went back and watched the snippets of the crowd. It is crazy how engaged that fan base was then 
And it, it seems like now that was 50 years ago. It does seem that way. And, you know, some of it may be unfair to Derek Mason. But virtually anybody who, after James Franklin, is going to do. And James, as Franklin did a couple of times, all of a sudden that ratchets up expectations. And, you know, for the better part of 75 years, other than Franklin's, you know, short tenure, uh, those kind of win totals just weren't realistic. And um, it's just been very interesting to watch um, because I saw the same film footage that you saw. And uh, and I was kind of taken back by, wow, people really got into this. And now comparing it six, seven years later, it does feel like it was forever ago. I can't prove this, but it's felt to me like a while, for, for a while, like the university's just done everything it can to try to dismantle that fan base and then point the finger back at it and say, well, look, see, nobody cares anymore. Uh, and, and then when people do care, uh, kind of ignore it. And, and again, just it's been a series of decisions where they haven't funded football. It's killed the the pulse of the fan base. And then they point back and say, people aren't interested. I can't prove that it's been coordinated, but it certainly has had that feeling at times. Well, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. That may be a better uh, way to put it, yes. Yeah, and, and, and that's just simply what, what it has become. It wasn't perfect uh, when James Franklin was here, but it was starting to build. And I've always wondered, um, you know, how much different would any of this have been if there had not been um, the rape situation? Uh, because that sort of gave the school the easy out to say, see, it got out of control and we're not letting that happen. I have always said that too, but the more I think of it, if it wasn't that, it would have been something else. I mean, somebody would have gotten caught plagiarizing or, I mean, I I think you're right. And maybe, maybe it was, but it seems like the anti-sports contingent and the culture there has been so strong. It's been such a current that nobody can swim upstream against that I wonder if it hadn't been that, if they would not have chosen something else and made that the rallying cry to just tear it all down, so to speak. Well, you're right. It would have been something else. Um, You know, if it hadn't been that, there would have been something else that probably would have done it because I'm not sure that the school really wants or cares about having really good football. I I think they're, they're fine as long as they don't get embarrassed uh, by certain aspects of, you know, going three and eight or three and nine, whatever it is. And um, it's just really unfortunate because you know, I see, I see this show last night on SEC Network, like I said, about all these alums and, um, and how much fun they have going back. 
And unfortunately, for those of us who went to school there, we picked one of the few schools where there's no care. There's no, there's nothing about it uh, other than Tim Corbin that says, hey, there's a standard of excellence here that we want year in and year out. Uh, They just don't care. I think I have shared this story on one podcast before. It's been a year or two, but my wife went to the University of Nebraska and was a student there during two of its national championships. And so last summer, while we were in Omaha for the College World Series, we went back back and for the first time our kids got to walk through the campus and see the buildings that she went to class in and, and the dorms that she lived in and those sorts of things. A lot of it was closed down, but at least we saw it from the outside. And one of the cool things is they have this huge athletics building that's really nice. And they have a person manning the front there whose job it is to greet guests. And just inside that building, they have this little room where you can walk in. Anybody can walk in at any time and have this little panel on the wall where you can watch five or six videos about the University of Nebraska and its football history. And you watch the Heisman the players who won the Heisman. And one thing to have is like this game day type of video where you see the players walking out of the tunnel and they have a, a view of the stadium and what they're seeing. It just it plugs you into the atmosphere of it as best you can without being there with the big screens and the stereo sound and the surround sound. It was really cool. And I just got really sad for a lot of people as I watched it. I'm just like, you know, this is what fans get to experience elsewhere this is what my son would experience, say, if we lived in Lincoln because he loves football and he gets into all those things. And I'm just like, you know, for all the kids and the fans out there that have just continually had this squashed by the school and instead they sit in a stadium that's either empty like it was for the ETSU game or you're overrun by fans from Georgia and LSU like they saw last year. It just really makes me sad for that fan base that it does not get to experience anything close to what everyone else gets. Yeah, it's not fair, and it's why a lot of people just retreat and say, you know what, Um, I can learn to be a, a Preds fan, or I can learn to be a Braves fan, or I can learn to whatever, um, because they just ultimately decide why, why am I beating my head against this wall? I don't owe anybody this. And so they end up going on to other things. And the scary part is, in a lot of cases, that they find ways, you know, that they find out that there is life after that school that on Saturday um, can give them, you know, um, excitement and happiness and whatever. And, um, So that's just the way it is. Last thing, Candace Lee came out on Twitter last week and was doing a question and answer session with fans. It was uh, only slightly more revealing than the two frustrated media sessions we had with her. What in the world do you think she was trying to accomplish? Oh, I I don't know. Um, Because she's, um, first of all, she's very good at, um, you know, acting like she's open and transparent while telling you absolutely nothing. And um, 
So I, I don't really know. I mean, one of the things that has gone on here in this 30-day period is it's totally stopped dead talk of a new stadium or talk of just about anything because there's nothing to talk about. And maybe, I, I don't know, maybe this is a good time for them where they're not under the microscope. They don't have a lot of people poking at them, asking a lot of questions. Uh, but here's one thing. I would think that this whole pandemic has decreased the possibility that football is going to do anything significant about a stadium, whether it's refurbishing Dudley field or building a new one. I, I don't see where this 30 days uh, of the pandemic could have helped this at all. Yeah, I don't either. And she brought up, you know, or she didn't dismiss stadium stuff. She talked about that being one of the pillars. Um, I just, have a hard time imagining the school supporting that. I could be wrong. Um, the only thing I can figure is that she's trying to please both sides. That because I've, I've asked, she's told people she'd like to be on my podcast. I've extended the invitation. I've not gotten a response. I will circle back on that. To her, to in fairness to her. Uh, that request was made right when the pandemic started. So I will yeah. try again. The only thing I can figure, though, because the bar at Vanderbilt has gotten so low to please fans. I mean, you saw people get excited at the end of the year about a 3-15 and hoops team because that has sunk so low. I mean, after 0-18, after that starts to look good. You saw people get excited about women's basketball. They weren't any good again, but they show a sign of life every once in a blue moon, and now that's good enough to satisfy people. I think the bar has gotten so low outside of baseball to keep fans happy. Uh, And again, this is, who knows what her motives are, but it almost seems like given that the school has communicated so little, she can put herself act out there, act like she's interested, not really answer anything, and at the same time, not say anything, which I think is what the school wants. I mean, you saw that Hustler article this weekend, uh, and, and it threads the needle both ways, and it manages to keep both sides satisfied. That's the only explanation I can come up with. I don't have any proof for that. Maybe the reasons are entirely different, but I watch what she does and that's the only way that I can reconcile those two things. One of the reactions that you get from a lot of people on Twitter is that all they talk about are these plans that, you know, they have this strategic plan and they have this plan and they have that plan. And I think they're reaching a point where people are saying, I'm tired of hearing about your plan. I need to see some action. And I think that's going to be one of the next things they're going to encounter is quit telling me about your damn plans. I've been hearing this for too long. I need to see some action. Well, and the frustrating thing about our interview with them, okay, is the people that I have talked to, and there's been probably a half dozen of them that have had either interactions or insight on what has really gone on, which has been a part of athletic decisions, 
are not fans. Uh, they, they don't think she would be a good AD. Now, the coaches sing a little bit of a different tune. I think that the baseball office likes her. I think that uh, the old basketball staff liked her. There are pockets of people that support her, but they were more on the periphery. The people that I have talked to, that, that talked to, excuse my poor grammar there, who have more in-depth knowledge of her and her decisions and how she has conducted herself, uh, the endorsements there are not nearly as ringing, and they don't think she'd be a good AD. And so when we had our media session with her, I thought it was important that I give her a chance to kind of present herself and, and clarify her stances because part of it, too, is she was in the sidecar to David Williams and she might act differently and I felt like it was important to give her a chance to give her side of the story and say, hey, here are my philosophies and things like that. And, and she not only didn't answer them, uh, I felt like she made it personal. She started pointing her finger at me and and really distracting from the questions that I was trying to ask uh, and make it seem like an attack, which I thought was very poor and immature, but... I, I don't know. I, that's my impression of her so far. I'm interested to see if I can get her on the show again because I have a lot of questions. Uh, I would like to hear how she answers some of the internal objections that people have and give her a chance. Uh, I'm very skeptical that I'm going to get that. I think if she comes on, she will deflect again and not really answer things. Uh, she will get the chance. Uh, that effort will be made again. But I just I looked at what she was trying to do and, and – Again, to, to me, um, I, I didn't really get it if her interest is in really and truly serving Vanderbilt Athletics and its fans. Well, only time's going to tell on that. But I think that um, it, it's kind of a short leash right now because I think the the group, and it's a small group that cares, is getting tired of hearing about master plans. I think it's time for there to be some action. Well, the paradox that she is in is that, and you saw John Ingram hint at this. He said, well, she might be the person best equipped to deal with Vanderbilt because everybody's tried to swim upstream. You know, Not in his words, has gotten spit up and chewed out. So on one hand, it's like, maybe that's what makes her most qualified uh, in some opinions, that she can deal with them. But on the other hand, it's like, the old thing about do you want to be a part of a club that would have you as a member? Um, <laughs> endorsement may not by the school may not be a great thing for the future of athletics either, and that's kind of the paradox that Vanderbilt and she are both in. Yep. Again, only time's going to tell, but I do wonder if this thirty days that uh, the world has kind of stopped. I wonder up to and has this you know is this allowed significant while the uh the microscope isn't on them yeah oh, no yeah i wonder that too and with that i almost forgot the mailbag so let's not forget the mailbag oh gosh that is sponsored by vanable fan 
Josh Minton, an independent insurance agent operating out of Brentwood, who can take care of all your insurance needs. Call him today, 615-933-1979. Email him at josh at hqinsurance.com. Follow him on Twitter at joshuamintonhq or at facebook.com forward slash JD Minton HQ. He's my insurance agent. Give him a try. Tell him you heard about him here. HMHS says, have you heard of any proposals for how MLB might get some sort of a season in this year? And if so, do you have a favorite? Well, I think they're down to this Arizona bubble or nothing. Um, When you look at the logistics of how all this kind of stuff gets pulled off. The only reason for hope would be the fact that the players want the paycheck. That's the, to me, that's the only thing that's out there that gives me any hope. I don't believe for a minute minor league baseball plays at all this year, because if this is what it takes to get the major league guys uh, into a season, there's no way baseball is going to send spend the kind of money to see to it that this goes on on the minor league level. Uh, I would guess right now it's no, I don't see any way that it's 50 50 that they play this year. Um, I, you know, I got excited a week ago when all this started to come out, but the more, the more logistics that you hear about and, what all it would take to make all of this work. I think the bottom line to to everything that we're getting to is sometime in the next 14 to 21 days, this country needs some good news. It needs some serious good news that things are starting to take a turn for the better. And, you know, here's the stats to back it up. I think we desperately need that because right now we're all in kind of this sit and wait, but we don't, we don't have a lot of glimmers of hope right now. The plan that was interesting was the one floated where they would have the cactus league and the grapefruit league. Basically they would mix the leagues, have three divisions in each league and the teams that train in Arizona would play out there, the teams that train in Florida would play over there. I thought that was an interesting plan. Uh, now, what I would prefer is if they did that is they would just go strictly put one league in one spot and the other in the other spot. I would go, I would put the American League in Florida because you've got like the Yankees in Boston, so that's a little bit closer. You're not flying all the way across the country to Arizona. Um, although I guess the, the Philadelphia teams or the, the Pennsylvania teams might argue that a little bit, but, and then maybe put the national league in Arizona where you've got the diamondbacks out there. Anyway, you've got the Dodgers, the giants and the Padres all out on that side of the country. And then just go strictly ALNL. Don't do any interleague play and then have a meet in the series. Like you used to, if they were to do a plan, that's kind of the one that I'd like to see is a modified version of the Grapefruit and Cactus League that they proposed. Are you now where I am? It's less than 50-50. No, I'm not. I'm actually on the other side, but I'm also not in those rooms and I don't have all access to information. My stance has been all along that 
you have incentives, and incentives are what dictate life, okay? You have all these owners who don't want to lose billions of dollars. You have these players who probably don't want to lose salaries either. You have the market coming up for things like testing. You're seeing a lot more production of those things. Like weeks ago, we didn't have this test where you can find out in 15 minutes whether you have the virus or not. Um, I, I just think incentives are a strong thing. I'm not trying to be insensitive all, all about the virus and people's health. That's not what I'm trying to say. But you can suffer in two ways. You can suffer through disease or you can suffer through economic collapse. In my opinion, and it's a very uninformed one, is that somewhere in the middle of these things would meet towards not a complete and total shutdown for the rest of the calendar year, but it's also not, hey, let's all get back together and live life as we normally would to where disease spreads either. My feeling is that they would meet in the middle, uh, and I think we will have something. I could be wrong. Again, that is just pure uninformed speculation on my part. Okay. Like it. Well, I hope I'm right. I hope you're right, too. Uh, Because life without Major League Baseball, that has been the part that's hit me the hardest. Yeah. Well, I think people know it has me, too. Well, God help you as you try to do 10 hours of sports talk this week. Tell people (laughs) where they can find that and where they can find you on social media. Okay. Uh, I do have a Twitter account to the shock of one and all. George Plaster TN is the handle. Uh, I do a show every day from 2 to 4 p.m. on WNSR, which is 560 on the AM dial, 95.9 on FM. And if you're stuck at home, go on the app and listen at Nash Sports Radio. Thank you so much, George. Absolutely. Enjoyed it. You bet. Everybody stay safe. Yes, yes, indeed. He is George Plaster. I'm Chris Lee, the host of the Vandy Sports Podcast. We appreciate you listening, and we'll have more episodes coming your way later in the week.